Thank you for watching this online message from Riverstone Church. We hope that this content encourages you and helps you further develop your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information, visit riverstonechurch.net. There you can learn more about us, view additional messages, submit your prayer needs, and even give online. Thank you for watching, and may the Lord richly bless you. Let's look in the scriptures to Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 39. Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 39. Scripture says, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or trouble or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Just as it is written, For your sake we are killed all day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your graciousness and mercy today. We thank you for the word of the Lord which speaks to us. We thank you for your presence during our time of singing and worship, Lord. We thank you for visiting us. We thank you, God, for the move of your spirit during baptism and during prayer and during the reading of the scriptures, Lord. We thank you. God, we pray that you would be with us even in these moments of the preaching of the gospel. Lord, that you would be exalted, that your name would be praised. God, that as we leave this place, we would do so rejoicing, O oh Lord Jesus and the fellowship of the company of saints and the word of the Lord and going in the power of the Spirit. So God, move upon us in these moments ahead. Lead us by your gracious hand. Guide us into your word and into your truth this morning, Lord Jesus, we pray. We thank you, God, for your presence here today and your precious holy name we ask it. Amen and amen. Uh, we are looking today at the theme of love. So we have worked through hope and peace and joy. And now this Sunday, we look uh, to love. I'm not generally a uh, pastor or preacher who preaches uh, thematically. I prefer, as you probably have already guessed, if you've been here a little while, to work through the scriptures, uh, books or longer passages of scripture at a time to give us uh, the context. Uh, but I believe that this passage today uh, on the theme of love out of uh, the letter to the Roman believers is one that God would speak to us very clearly uh, in our day and during this uh, Christmas season. Romans, the letter, as you read through it, is essentially a letter of introduction. Uh, the Apostle Paul is seeking to introduce himself uh, to uh, the Roman church, to those who are believing in, uh, who are believers who come together within the house church movement that was uh, there in Rome. The Apostle Paul was introducing himself. He actually was trying to accomplish multiple things. One, he wanted to impart to them uh, some spiritual gift. Uh, the scripture says, he says, I long to be with you that I may impart to you uh, some spiritual gift. He wanted to exercise the apostolic authority that God had given him uh, over the churches. 
He, again, wanted to help them be familiar with his ministry and what was happening and what God was leading him to do. He also wanted to visit Rome in order to take up an offering. His desire was that the Roman believers would participate with him in sharing the gospel, and he wanted Rome essentially uh, to be a home base that he could work out of or work from uh, to begin to move the gospel uh, all the way into Spain was uh, his hope. This particular uh, text that we're looking at is uh, the Apostle Paul celebrating the work of God in Christ Jesus, the saving work of God in Christ Jesus. And it is a beautiful and wonderful passage that is triumphant in its nature because of the work of Christ. And every believer is able to find hope in this particular passage because as we look at Romans 8 and verse 35 and 36 and 37 and 38 and 39, we find hope in the power of God to continue to keep us until that day. As he looks to the scriptures, as he thinks about the Roman church, as he thinks about God's grace for them, I'd like us to actually begin at the end of this particular uh, passage. Instead of starting at verse 35, I'd actually like us to look and to begin at the end of verse 39. If you look at verse 39 at the very end, the Apostle Paul is talking about what is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so the question then has to be answered to everything that the Apostle Paul has spoken about prior to this in this passage, what is the love of Christ, the love of God in Christ Jesus? Now, we may think that, yes, we know what that is. We have a conceptualization of what that is, but I think it's important as believers that we rehearse what is the love of God in Christ Jesus? Why do we gather in this sort of assembly to celebrate what Jesus Christ has done? Why do we think about God's love towards us? Why do we think about God in terms of his salvation and what does all that mean? And if we were to go all the way back to the book of Genesis, what we find is that God created you and me in his sovereignty as the highest and best of creation. You and I were created as the capstone of creation. We are the only ones that are created in the image of God, not the beast of the field, not the beast of the sea, not the beast of the, the birds of the air, not anything or anyone else was created in God's image. You and I were created in his image, not in a bodily image as if God has hands and feet and eyes. The Bible personifies him in that way sometimes, but God is a spirit and doesn't have a body like us. So in what way then are we created in his image? We're created in his moral and spiritual image. We have a spirit and we have a soul that will never die. That which lives within you, that gives you an, a sense of being, that gives you a sense of eternal purpose. There is a part of you that will exist. And though the body may die, that spirit man will exist into eternity. That is how God created you as the highest and best of creation. In the beginning, in the garden that God himself planted with his own finger and set man in the midst of it to rule over it, God put two trees in the midst of that garden. And there was one command 
Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. To Adam and Eve, our first parents, do not eat of this particular tree in the garden. You say, Robert, do you believe that the Genesis account is literal? And I will say, yes, I believe it's literal. I believe in a literal Adam and Eve. I don't believe it was figurative. I don't believe it was symbolic. I don't believe it was something made up to explain human origins. I believe that God created Adam and Eve and God planted a garden and God set Adam and Eve in the midst of it. And when Adam and Eve were created in their first being, they were without sin. They existed with God, and they existed in a place where there was no sin. How long that time period lasted, I'm not sure. Scripture is not exactly clear on that. But there was a period of time in which Adam and Eve existed in a sinless state before God. And the enemy came in the form of a serpent, and the enemy began to tempt by the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And Eve succumbed, and Adam succumbed to the sin that they were tempted to do, to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And once they took the bite of whatever kind of fruit that was on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the Bible says their eyes were opened and they realized that they were naked and they hid themselves. So before there was no sin, there was one commandment, hey, don't eat this. And Adam and Eve could not keep that one commandment. Unless we get a little haughty and think, I would have done better than that, the Bible's clear that we wouldn't have. In fact, the Bible tells us that in some mysterious way that we were participators in that first sin. Imagine that. This is why we're under the judgment as well. That Adam and Eve, when they sinned, you and I were also in Adam. We're participators in that sin of our first parents. Thus, God's just judgment of what he said prior to Adam and Eve. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And immediately when they ate of it, that spirit man was disfellowshipped from God. There was a barrier between man and God. And God says, don't worry so much later. Uh, Jesus speaks this in the New Testament. Don't worry so much about who can kill the body. Worry about the judge of the soul, judge of the spirit man. So immediately that spirit man was disfellowshipped from God, in essence died. There was now no more fellowship with God through the spirit. And as the spirit went... So the body began to follow, the decay of the body and the eventual death of the body that was to come. Even in that moment in the early portion of Genesis, God gives us a prophetic look of what he's going to do in Christ. Why you and I are celebrating this Advent season. Why we think about the babe coming in the manger. Because from that point on until the point of Christ, the scriptures affirm to us and tell us that there was this longing for Messiah to come. The day of the Lord, Israel as a people, as they were taught and they, were, uh, they learned by the word of the Lord, they longed after the day when Messiah would come and reconcile them back to God and begin to set all things back in order again. God's image bearers had marred their spiritual likeness to him. It was not gone, but it was marred. And the penalty 
was death. The good news for you and for me is that God loves us. Our theme for today, love. God loves us and made a way for us to be reconciled unto him. The penalty for sin clearly is death, just that one sin. Remember in Adam and Eve's day, there was no Ten Commandments. There was no additional 600 or so added on by the later religious leaders. There was only one commandment at that time, and it became their sin and death. But remember that sin is not simply a list of things that God does not like, although it is a list of things that God doesn't like, but it's not simply that. Sin is called to our attention because sin brings destruction. Just as the very first sin brought destruction, every sin that you and I would participate in or commit or long after be tempted towards or have some bound up habit towards every single sin that you and I would commit in this day. It's not because God just says, hey, I like that. I don't like that. I like that. I don't like that. I like that. I don't like that. It's not because of that. God is saying, these things that I'm saying for that are sin, they will bring destruction upon you. So I want to redeem you. I love you. I want to call you to myself. I want to reconcile what was broken. So don't participate in these things that you and I might have fellowship. Sin entered the world through the temptation of Adam and Eve, and God brought the law which identified for us a host of things that are destructive to his image bearers. Sin in its most rudimentary form is like an untreated, life-threatening disease. Its initial effects may be unfelt and unseen, but it will ultimately destroy you and destroy me. And for those who continue in a life of sin, the scripture is clear to us that hell is the punishment for someone who refuses God's love. It is the punishment for someone who knows they are in sin and refuse to see the great physician. We do not like to think about hell, but hell is a reality. It is a present reality. And I don't think that you can rightly think about God's love without also talking about hell. Our society and our culture likes to talk a lot about love, likes to talk a lot about the concept of love. And in our society and in our culture, the idea and the concept of love is you just do your thing. You do what you want to do. If it feels good to you, go ahead and do it. There's a lot of things that feel good, but if I were to go out and do them this afternoon, it would bring instant destruction to my life, to the family, to this church, and to a lot of other things. But the world says, if that's who you are, do it. Go after it. Pursue it. Run after it. That's not love. God's love is distinct and different. But again, we can't rightly talk about God's love without also rightly talking about the punishment for those who refuse to live in God's love. 
I know Christmas is supposed to be a joyous season and celebrate, and it's probably not many Advent messages that you've heard that are going to speak about hell the way we're going to talk about it in the next few minutes. But the next time someone asks you, when's the last time you heard a message on hell? Say Christmas at Riverstone. The traditional understanding of hell consists of three parts. It is eternal, it is conscious, and it's punishment. The duration of hell is eternal because people are made to last forever. Remember that spirit that will never die? They will either live eternally in heaven or eternally in hell. There's no middle state. There's no death that you can get prayed out of and make a better place into heaven. You can't pay ahead of time to get your place into heaven. There is heaven or there is hell. And I know we can get into some theological uh, discussions of you know, the ultimate reality of, of hell and Gehenna and the lake of fire and all those things. But what I want to confirm to you today is that hell is a place of separation from the Lord that happens when our bodies cease to exist in this life. And the prophet Daniel wrote about the eternal nature of heaven and hell when he said, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt in Daniel 12 and 2. The eternal, never-ending nature of the sinner's punishment is directly related to the infinite and eternal nature of God. When you sin against an infinite God, you accrue an infinite debt. Adam and Eve sinned one time, and they accrued an infinite debt. And this is the only way that we're able to explain God's decision to not spare his own son, but to deliver him to suffer in our place, according to Romans 8 and 32. An eternal, infinite being was needed to bear the weight of an infinite punishment. The experience of hell is eternal. The experience of hell is conscious. People in hell are not asleep. They're not annihilated. Instead, people are awake and aware of their experience. Jesus said, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Those who have sinned, Matthew 8 and 12, those who have sinned consciously must also bear their punishment consciously. The Bible tells us that we have not been passive in our rebellion against God, but have been willing participants and active rebels. As I mentioned earlier, God considers us to have been participants with Adam and Eve in that very first sin. And justice demands conscious punishment, not mere annihilation of the person or his or her sin. And what clearer example do we have than our Lord Jesus Christ, who consciously bore in his body God's wrath against sin? If Christ's suffering for our sin was conscious, so too will be the suffering of those who bear their own sin apart from the forgiveness of Christ. Hell is also a just punishment for sin. It is not an unearned sentence, but is a lawful condemnation of sinners who deserve the penalty that they receive. 
Jude explained the nature of hell when he said, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, these serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Jude 1, 1 7. Conscious eternal punishment is a reality without Christ. Nonetheless, the Bible indicates to us that Christ was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world was laid, Christ's sacrifice of himself was a present reality. If we were to take this cross and if the front of this pulpit were to look as if it were time to you and me, the beginning of time when God set things on the earth in order to the end of time when God finishes up everything and we have that time when we will see the Lord face to face. If we were to put Christ in the center of that time, one of the things that you're able to see is you can look upon the front of this pulpit and you can see it in one instant. It's not as if you have to scan it. You're able with your own eyes to see from beginning to end in one instant. This is how God sees the work upon the cross. The Lord can say that from the foundation of the world that he was the lamb slain. Because when God decreed it and God said it, even though it happened in a historical moment, it was as good as done. God spoke of it even in time beforehand as if it had already happened. Because when God speaks, his word is truth, and God cannot lie. And so just as God sees from start to finish in one instance, just as you're able to look at what we, would, we could say here is the progress of time from start to finish in one instance, this is how God sees all of our existence. And those from the beginning of time until the cross, they looked forward to a Messiah. This is how they were saved, how they were reconciled to God. They hoped in the promise of God, the scripture said. Those of us who are after the cross in time, we look back to the cross with a greater understanding, a greater knowledge of what actually happened, which was recorded for us that we might believe. We look back to the cross and we are saved by the reflection of Jesus' death upon the cross. Theologians indicate to us the words that they would use is Christ was our substitute. Substitutionary atonement. The idea being that it should be you and I upon the cross. You and I should bear the penalty of death. It was our sin, not his. It was our fault, not his. And Christ in his purity, in his love, in his holiness, he became the atoning sacrifice and he substituted himself for us. He was our substitutionary atoning sacrifice. Understanding that there's a conscious eternal punishment Understanding what Christ did upon the cross. Only then can we begin to understand the love of God which has been poured out for us. Only then can we begin to understand the significance of Romans 5 and 8. That God by his sovereign act on the cross proves his love for us in this. Proves his love. That while we were still sinners... 
Christ died for. Why were we, while we were still in our iniquity and our sin, while we did not want anything to do with him, while we didn't desire him, we didn't want to be in his likeness, we didn't want to walk in his holiness, while we were still in our iniquity and sin, Christ died for us. And then we begin to back up in the text this morning, and we begin to ask the same question of the Apostle Paul. If this great love has visited us, if this great love of the Lord Jesus Christ has encountered us, if it has transformed us, if we have committed our hearts to him, we are seeking to walk in his ways, we believe he was that righteous sacrifice, we look back and we say, Jesus was my substitute. I should have been upon that cross. I should have been nailed to that tree. It should have been my blood that was shed, but there was a righteous and sinless sacrifice, and his name was Jesus. I believe in that sacrifice. I stand firmly committed to what Jesus has done. If that is our belief, then we must ask the next question, which the Apostle Paul asks. We realize that love. What can separate us from that love? If we've encountered that love, We've experienced that love. We believe in that love. Then we have to wonder, I've got to exist upon this earth for a time period. Maybe God may take me home this afternoon. Maybe it may be tomorrow. Maybe it may be 20 years. Maybe it may be 30 or 40. I'm not sure. But for whatever reason, I've got a time period to exist. So my question is, can something separate me? Can something come in between me and that love that God has for me, that God is pouring in my heart, that God wants me to experience and to know that redeeming love that takes me from what I should deserve in the bowels of hell, that takes me from what I should deserve of being crucified myself? Is there something that can separate me from that love? In other words, the Apostle Paul would ask that question is there something greater than Christ's love that can break his hold on you and me if we believe in him? Is there something that is more significant than Christ's love that can release us from the grip of his hand? The Apostle Paul begins to ask some questions. He says, well, tribulation, well, distress, Will persecution, will famine, will nakedness, will peril, will the sword? Are any of these things greater or more powerful than the love of Christ for us? And he doesn't wait for you to answer, and he doesn't wait for me to answer the question, but he begins to pin it himself. And this is why I love the Apostle Paul, because he writes and he gets caught up in his own thoughts and the wonder and the amazement of the Lord Jesus Christ and his power and his love for us. And he answers his own question, and he says in each of these things, in tribulation and in distress and in persecution and famine, in nakedness and peril, in each of these things, they do not conquer us, but we 
we overwhelmingly conquer through Jesus who loved us. And I can know and I can understand that because when tribulation comes, I will not be discouraged because of the promise of God I will stand upon in John 16 and 33. In this world, you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer that God has overcome the world. When distress comes my way, I remember in my mind Psalm 45 and 3. Why are you downcast, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. When persecution happens, I remember Matthew 5 and 10, where Jesus told me, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When I feel the persecution breathing down my neck, I can stand firm to know that God's promise says, I am blessed for even enduring the persecution. In the days of famine, I recall Psalm 37 and 19, that says, They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they have abundance. When I wonder if I have enough to clothe my body, I recall according to Matthew chapter 6 that God clothes the grass of the field and that if he clothes the grass which is here today and gone tomorrow, how much more will he clothe me? When I'm in peril, I'm comforted by Psalm 46 and 1 to know that God is my refuge and strength. He is a very present help in the time of trouble. When I feel as though I, my life is in danger, when I feel as though my thoughts in my head are going to get the best of me, when I think as though my life is in peril, I'm able to rest and reflect upon Psalm 46 and 1. God is a very present help. He's not just a present help. He could have, the psalmist could have written it that way, but he didn't write it that way. He wrote that he is a very present help. When you're in the midst of trial, you'll go through it. Don't think that God will deliver you from the trials of fire. On our wedding day, I remember how the pastor prayed for us. He said, I pray that you will help them and you will be with them and that you will help them through the trials, but help them to go through the trials that will increase their faith and strengthen them for the journey ahead. He was a very intelligent man, a very spiritual man who understood the ways of the Lord. He didn't pray that we be delivered from every single tribulation and you're not gonna be delivered from every single tribulation or hardship. I'm I'm not going to be delivered from every single tribulation or hardship, every single anxiety of the mind, because God wants us to rest upon his promise that he is very present with us. You've heard me share this, I think, before. <clears throat> the idea of the Emmanuel prophecy, God with us. The understanding is not simply that God is with you as I'm here with you this morning. We're in the same room together, and when we leave church today, we'll say, we were with so-and-so. I was with my wife this morning. I was with Brother Jesus this morning. I like that I was with Jesus this morning. I was with my brother and my sister. That's the idea, the understanding. But the understanding of the Emmanuel prophecy is not just that we're in the same room with Jesus, that Jesus passed on by and that we were with him. The idea and the understanding of the Emmanuel prophecy, God being with us, is that God is right next to us. He is right next to us as you would maybe lean a board up against a wall. The Lord has leaned up against us. God is with us in such a tangible, personal way. He's with us in our trials. He's with us in our circumstances. And what he wants you and I to know and to understand is that these trials are working within us a greater glory. Maybe sometimes we ought not pray for deliverance from trials, and I've prayed for my deliverance from, from my own trials. 
Tell me about praying for deliverance from trials. I pray, God, deliver me. God, rescue me. Get me out of this mess. I want it like it was before, God. And you know what? It didn't happen. It didn't happen. Because God says, I'm stirring in you something different, and I'm teaching you something different. There's a place that you got to go that sometimes the trials and tribulations are the only way that you're going to get there because it's in the midst of trials and tribulations that you're willing to drop to your knees and pray to me and intercede. It's when there's difficult times that you're asking for help because you realize you can't do it yourself. Robert, you think you got a lot of knowledge, a lot of wisdom, a lot of understanding, but what you also need to know is that I'm walking you through this season right up next to you, but what I want you to know is that you've got to bow your knees sometimes. You've got to get in the prayer closet sometimes, and sometimes it's a little more than what you gave in the past. Sometimes it's a little more than, oh, Jesus, help me. Jesus, uh, deliver me. Jesus, move from me. Jesus, help me. Move me in this direction. Sometimes there is a laboring that must happen. The night in which Jesus was betrayed. In the Gospel of Luke, Luke records the physician, Luke, he points out details of certain things that the other writers don't point out. You notice Luke is, uh, he, he writes a lot about the miracles and the healing. He talks clearly about the place of women in which Jesus elevated the place of women. And one of the details that Luke records in his Gospel on the night before Jesus was betrayed and said that Jesus travailed in prayer and his sweat became as drops of blood. There was a travailing. And he went to his disciples and he said, can't you tarry with me just one hour? Can't you, can't you tarry? Can't you, can't you intercede? Watch and pray. The tempter's coming. Watch, pray, intercede. And he goes away and he's in his prayer closet in the garden, as it were. And the disciples are trying. They don't really realize what's happening and what's coming and what's moving along here, and they fall asleep. Had they known, how much more would they have been in prayer? I think the same thing is with you and I. Sometimes it's the it is the move of disaster in our life, the move of challenge, the move of difficulty, that unsuspecting moment in which something moves in that moves us to a place. We'll get a belt for this thing. That moves us to a place of prayer. But how much better for us if we were realizing that those times of tribulation will come. I'm as Pentecostal as the next guy. I believe in the full gospel. I believe in the move of the Spirit. I believe what the Bible says is what the Bible teaches. I believe every single piece of that. And sometimes, unfortunately, in Pentecostal theology, what uh, some have tried to say is that if you love God just right, if you pray just right, if you do this just right, it's going to be smooth sailing for you from the get-go to on. And that's not the way, that's not the word of the Lord for you or for me or for anybody else. In fact, the word of the Lord is really quite the opposite. What I find and what I think is if you're really pursuing the Lord, there's going to be an enemy after you. If you're sitting on the pew just warming the bench, he's probably not going to be that upset. But if you're actually doing something for Jesus, you're going to wear out, you're going to get tired, you're going to get tempted, you're going to get upset. You're going to, it's going to happen. But we have to be in the posture and in the place of prayer in a consistent way so that we understand that God is 
our very present help in time of trouble. When I'm afraid because of the threat of war, war within my heart, war outside, we hear it. If you turn on the news, you hear it all the time. The Apostle Paul asks, will a sword or will war separate us from the love of God? Exodus 15 and 3, what a scripture of hope. The Lord is a man of war, and the Lord is his name. God is a man of war. When you're in the midst of war, when you're in the midst of struggle, when you're challenged, God is a man of war, and God does not lose. God does not retreat. God does not step back. He doesn't have to think about the tactics of the enemy. He doesn't have to wonder if they're going to come around from the side, if they're going to come around from the back. He doesn't have to wonder about any of that because he is the Lord. He is a man of war, and he will win because Jesus has rescued you if you believe in him and you believe in his saving grace because Jesus has rescued me because I believe in him and because I believe in his saving grace as he has rescued us from the depths of hell, from the depths of our personal hell, I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is nothing this morning that will separate you from the love of God. There is nothing that will come between you and the love that God has for you. There is a song that talks about the pursuing love of God. God's love pursuing after you and me. God is desirous for us to be reconciled to him. Yes, it is an assurance that hell is real. Yes, it is an assurance that unfortunately there are souls that find themselves there today. But what I also realize is I have grieved over family members who I didn't know what their confession was. As I have stood in front of boxes of people that I didn't even know and didn't know what their relationship with Jesus was and family has asked me for some hope. The hope that I'm able to give and what I'm able to share is that what I know is the God I serve is a God of love. What I know is the God I serve always does the right thing. I never have to wonder, is God's judgments right? His judgments are always right. He's always correct. And he always is good. Our God is always good. When we get to heaven, we see him face to face. I stand full uh, and full knowledge of the understanding that there's going to be some surprises in glory. There's going to be some surprises in glory of who's there. There's probably going to be some surprises in glory of who's not there. But I stand confident in this. I will rest in the truth of my Savior. I will rest in the truth of God that he is not a liar. I will rest in the truth of God that he is faithful and he will deliver to the end as I continue to persevere, as I continue to taste and see that the Lord is good, as I continue to keep my eyes fixed upon the author and finisher of my faith. There is not anything that will separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Brother and sister, I believe that is the word of the Lord. And we will stand together today and let's pray and seek God. If you're here this morning 
I want to encourage you in a couple things. There are those who have walked long with the church. Seated in the church, part of the church, participating in what the church does, doing what the church does. And I believe don't have a relationship with Jesus because what I can tell you is going to church doesn't make you saved. I believe in the church. I believe in the local assembly of believers. I'm stronger when I'm with you. I'm stronger when we stand together. I pray that you're stronger as we stand together too. As we look around the room and we love one another, and that is Christ's love at work within us, that we can have a great love for one another. But I also know and understand that there are some who have made a cultural commitment to being in church. Or being in church is their way to say, I'm saved because I go to church. In street evangelism, often what you find when you ask someone, do you know Jesus? Yes, I go to such and such church. Going to church doesn't make you saved. It has to be a real commitment to Jesus. You have to accept that he is your substitute, which means first you have to accept that you were supposed to be on that cross. Do you realize, do I realize, and I don't think I do, the depth of my own sin that put him there? But in whatever faculty that God has given me to be able to perceive the depths of my own sinfulness, I accept that that should have been punished by eternal separation from God. I accept that the punishment for that should have been eternal conscious torment. And in the moment that I accept that, I also read the word of the Lord that speaks to me about the love of Jesus upon the cross. That he who was perfect and sinless, he who is entering into the human predicament, the understanding of scripture is that Jesus condescended himself. He he came down and took on flesh for you and me. Spotless, perfect, sinless, walking upon the earth. Through no sin that he had committed, the religious leaders of his day hated him. They were jealous, the scripture says. They were fearful about what would happen, the scripture says. And they conspired to kill him. And when the hand of a betrayer presented the opportunity, they took it for 30 pieces of silver. 
And the God of the universe who walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day now walked with a cross upon his back. He literally felt the nails in his hands and feet. The crown of thorns was pressed into his brow. Blood shed down his body. The song says, and the scriptures affirm, that the Father turned his face away. Because the holiness of God can't look upon the sinfulness of man. And Christ took upon himself the sins of the whole world, your sin and my sin. And at the moment when he said, Father, it is finished, he breathed his last. The veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom not simply signifying that you and I had a place to enter into the holy place to come to God, but also signifying to us that God himself now could come to sinful man because he could see us through the blood of Jesus Christ. It not only let us into the holy of holies, it let God out. If you believe that sacrifice was for you and on Christmas, when we think about the unspeakable gift, I can't even put it into terms to you this morning. I can't rightly explain it all to you today, but at Christmas, when we think about the unspeakable gift, yes, we're talking about Jesus coming as a babe in a manger, but we can't talk about the babe in a manger without thinking about the cross. We can't talk about the babe in a manger without thinking about a sinless, spotless sacrifice that came and visited this earth that we might be reconciled to him. So today, if you affirm, yes, I believe that. Praise the Lord. You have a sense and a taste of the depth of his love to rescue you from the depths of sin. But if you are to say today, I'm not sure I believe it in that respect, or I'm not sure until this point I believed it in that respect. Maybe I've taken it for granted. Maybe I've tried to rely upon my good works in order to secure me a place from God with God. I don't want to scare anybody, but I want you to know the reality of what exists when this body passes on. My brother called me this week. He was out in front of their place of business. He was walking toward the street. There was cars that were stopped going in one direction. Cars that were coming this direction. He heard the noise and a young lady was coming and didn't see the car stop. She was looking down. He saw her at her phone. Young people, take it to heart. 
She looked up. She saw the car stop, swerved into oncoming traffic, struck a man head on. Before he made it to the hospital, he had passed into eternity. We're not guaranteed of tomorrow. So if you sense that you're not sure this morning, this is a day of salvation. If you're not sure this morning, Jesus is standing saying, receive this gift. Receive this gift. 